scripture, let me ask you please to pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, as we come, I pray that you would uh, open this word to us, help us to see it, understand, overcome, I pray, any resistance that we may have to hearing it. Some resistance is just the general weakness, God, of our own humanity. We get tired, we get distracted, and so forth. So overcome that, I pray, but also overcome that which is uh, sin in us that causes us to rebel against that which is true. And so I pray, Father, uh, that you would overcome that resistance as well. Be with us, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn, please, to Second Samuel and chapter 9. Second Samuel and chapter 9. I want to read this chapter. It's a familiar one to many of us. Second Samuel and chapter 9, please. The David in this account is the king of Israel at the time. Uh, Saul is the previous king. Jonathan is David's, I'm sorry, Saul's son. So that's the context there. 2 Samuel chapter 9 verse 1. Hear the word of God. And David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant in the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. And they called him him to David. And the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Emil, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king said to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his Feet. Now we've been considering, as you know, the concept of covenant. We've been doing that from a particular sentence, a particular verse in Psalm 25, where David says, writes, 
that the friendship of the Lord or the secret counsel of the Lord or the intimacy, the intimate counsel of the Lord is with those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. And so coming in the fear of the Lord that is submitting ourselves to him, understanding that he's God and we're not and that we need him, um, coming in that way, we trust that he will make known to us his covenant. Now we know covenant is a relational word that is, it's a word that describes even forms the act of covenant relationships. It describes a covenant, describes the parties involved. It describes the obligations that one party has to the other in this covenant. And often in the midst of this also, there are laid out, not often, but always in the midst of this covenants are the responsibilities that one covenant person would have towards the other, and vows are made. Now, the very heart of a covenant, however, is assurance, that is guarantee. At the very heart of covenant is that this will be accomplished, that this covenant will be fulfilled by both parties. So there are guarantees built into this covenant agreement that result in People being assured, oh yes, this is really going to happen. One such guarantee are, are, are the fact that documents are normally prepared and, and, and they're ready there, right there to be read and to be consulted in the midst of this relationship. Uh, renewals happen, that is, these covenant documents are read from time to time so that everybody can say, oh, oh yeah, that's right, that's what I agreed to do, that's what you agreed to do, and, and to check up on each other. Uh, there are signs given that remind one another, oh yes, we've entered into this covenant arrangement. Every time we see that sign, every time we see that symbol, it reminds us that yes, we're in this arrangement, this agreement, we have this agreement together, we're in covenant together, and then, and then almost always there is what's called an oath curse taken, which rather sounds rather ominous, and it is. And in that oath curse, most often an animal is cut, is slain and cut, and, and, and the covenant parties walk through the pieces and, 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 and say that if I break this covenant, what has been done to this animal should be done to me. And so we see that this covenant, in a sense, is unbreakable. And if it is broken, then the breaker dies. And so, so it's, it's meant, covenants are meant to say, you can count on this. I guarantee I would enter into this covenant with you unless I guarantee by my own life that I'll fulfill it. And so what we're looking at, really, are these covenants that God makes we, we've divided them into two different categories, a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. We saw the covenant of works that is the relationship between humanity and people, uh, humanity and God, based on merit. We saw that in this covenant that God made at creation with Adam. But Adam <clears throat> failed that covenant, and thus his life to be taken, life to be taken. And, and, and life, in a sense, was this land that was God's land, the earth, that context, the Garden of Eden as we knew it, the, the people of God, the people that would come from Adam and Eve, all to live under God's rule. Well, when um, Adam sinned, that life was forfeited. He was expelled from the garden. Uh, he was condemned by God, cast out of his presence in that sense, if you will. And that corruption that was in Adam and the condemnation that was the result of Adam's sin went to all the parties who were in Adam, 
all the ones he representative, represented, which was the whole human race. And so there you have it. But, but God instituted, even then, this covenant of grace, this relationship with God based upon his graciousness, not based on our merit. And, and, and we see a glimpse of it right there in the garden when God made a promise that he would um, cause one to come from the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, the evil one, and thus redeem, restore. And then we see this being played out in various covenants. We saw the covenant with Noah, that God said, I'll preserve the earth. And there'll be grace commonly given amongst people in such a way that the earth would be preserved, that humanity would be preserved. We saw this covenant come to Abraham and, and a covenant made with Abraham, a covenant of promise, where God makes various promises to Abraham that he'll fulfill them. The covenant that comes by way of Moses with the people of Israel. We're about to come to a covenant with David, which we would refer to as the covenant of the kingdom, because we know that David would become the great king of Israel, and promises would be made to David, a covenant would be made with David, that one would sit on his throne over the people of God forever. Now, all of these covenants, you, you know, the game we're playing, we're, we're moving from these to Christ because that's where all of them go. That's where all of them point. That's, that's where the Bible always takes us. And so we've moved in that direction. And we'll go in that direction with this covenant with David. But to, before we get to that, I want to ask this question. And that question is this. How did David understand covenant? Now, certainly he would understand it from the day. He would understand it from, from the context, even of Scripture, of knowing this covenant with Adam, knowing this covenant with Noah, knowing this covenant with Abraham, knowing this covenant with Moses. He would know all of that, and God would enter into covenant with him. But, but there's something special about David, at least some information we have about him in the context of covenant, and that is that he was in covenant with a man by the name of Jonathan. And so I want to look at that covenant today and then move that to Christ and then next week come back to the covenant that God makes with David and we'll see all kinds of things there that David would know and practices because he understands covenant. But, but I want to take a look. Does that make sense to you? I want to back off a bit from these covenants that God makes with us and take a look at this covenant between David and Jonathan. We've done this before a couple of times in the last 20 years. Uh, I don't know of any better illustration of covenant than than this. Context is this. You remember from your reading of scripture or from history that the first king of Israel was a man by the name of Saul. People clamored for a king. God gave them Saul. Saul was an unfaithful king and so God rejected him. At the time of that rejection, God sent the prophet Samuel to come and anoint a young shepherd boy named David to be king. Now Saul continued on the throne, but the anointed David was a boy and growing, and he would eventually become king at Saul's demise. Now David and Saul met prior to David taking the throne. Because of the rejection of God, uh, by God of Saul, Saul was, oh, actually became, in some sense, crazy. I mean, he, was, he had great fits of rage. In order to soothe him, the people around Saul said, let's go get this young shepherd boy who's really good at playing the harp. I, providentially, ironically, it was David, the next king. 
And so David came into the palace and he would play his harp to soothe the moods of Saul. Secondly, we know that David and Saul knew each other because it was Saul who, who approved this young shepherd boy, David, to fight this great giant named Goliath. You remember that situation. But what came of that situation, David fighting Goliath, and by the way, of course, David fought Goliath, not because he looked in the mirror and said, I can take him, but he fought Goliath because he knew that Israel was the covenant nation of God. Thus he knew that when anyone came against the covenant people of God, that God would fight on their behalf. And so David was actually amazed that no one had already defeated this giant. He said, what are you waiting for? I'll do it. And again, he didn't do it because he thought he could, but he did it because he knew that Goliath was actually attacking God. And he knew that God would. And so you know that whole situation. But what came of that in the relationship between David and Saul was that Saul began to hate David. His fits of rage were then focused upon David. And he hated David because he was jealous of David because at the end of that, people made up a little jingle and they would sing it in the streets of Jerusalem, which was, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. And so Saul would have to listen to that all the time, and so he began to hate David. What makes this even more complicated in terms of the relationships is that David and Jonathan, Saul's son, were best friends. And so much friends that they loved each other, the scripture said, as they loved themselves, which is how we're to love each other. That was the, the biblical standard, if you will, to love your neighbor as yourself. And yet, this relationship was deeper, so much so that Jonathan was willing to give up his claim to the throne as the king's son, as being the prince. He was willing to give all of that up to David. Now, that was an amazing thing. Because the conventional wisdom was that if you were heir to the throne, you would hate any rival. Hate any rival to such a degree that you would kill any rival. And so really, the relationship between David and Jonathan should have been one of war. It should have been one wherein David would see Jonathan as the heir and say, I've got to get rid of him because I'm going to be the next king. And Jonathan should look at David if he knew of his anointing to be the next king and say, I've got to get rid of him because I'm going to be the next king. But rather than that, they loved one another. And we have this covenant, at least in the cliff notes, I don't know if anybody even knows what cliff notes are. Do they still do? Not that I ever used <laughs> cliff notes when I was in school, but, but it's sort of the shortened version, if you will, of the story. First uh, Samuel chapter 18 and verse 1. It goes like this. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, that is, David speaking to Saul, the son of the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, covenant language. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul, or loved him as, as himself. And Saul took him, the him there is David, that day and would not let him return to his father's house. That's part of the previous story. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his, himself. 
And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belts. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul, Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over, uh, set him over men of war, and that was good in the sight of all the people and good in the sight of Saul's servants. But you get this picture. They make this covenant together. And, and, and Jonathan takes off his robe. Now, this wasn't just a robe that anybody would wear. This was the robe the prince would wear. And he was known everywhere he went because if you knew, even if you didn't know his face, which was unlikely in those days that people knew faces of people because they didn't have pictures and they didn't have, you know, internet and all that sort of thing. And so... Um, uh, but the robe, everybody knew the robe. That was the prince. The prince had the robe on. And so he took off his robe that said, I'm the prince, I'm the heir. And he gave it to David and said, I'm submitting myself to you. And then he gave him his weapons, essentially his belt and all the weapons that were on him and his sword and his bow and all of that. And he said, I'm not going to fight you. You have my weapons. Not only that, this is symbolic of the fact that not am I not going to fight you, I'm going to defend you at any, every turn. And so that was the relationship that they had. It doesn't say here, but it's most likely, it would be almost unthinkable, that they didn't take an oath curse, they didn't kill an animal and walk between the pieces and make their vows and so forth and so on uh, to one another and have a meal together and say, this is our covenant bond. And you can see if you read through um, the various chapters of 1 Samuel and this relationship between David and Jonathan, that on the one hand, uh, Jonathan risked his life on various occasions because remember, Saul's, I mean, Jonathan's dad hated David. He was his rival. Saul wanted David dead and tried to take David's life on various occasions. And often, Jonathan would stand between, in various ways, his father and David, risk his own life, and uh, defend his covenant partner. That's what it meant to be in covenant with each other. Now, there's something about this covenant, too, that should go without saying, although they were explicit about it and they said it. In chapter 20 of 1 Samuel... um, Verse 14, Uh, Jonathan and David are renewing this covenant in some way, rehearsing it, renewing it. Verse 14 says, um, Jonathan speaking, If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. Steadfast love, that's, that's covenant language. That's how we're to treat one another in this steadfast love. That I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house Forever. In other words, Jonathan is saying, since we're in covenant together, I expect that everybody in my house, or everybody who's my offspring even, those aren't even alive today, but will come from me, that they're in this too, and they can, they can draw upon you because you're my covenant partner. Love, love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of his en- uh, the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on da- David's enemies. And Saul made David swear by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. And so we see it there that it's explicit. He says, I want you to, to um, uh, take care of all of my offspring and all of my house as well. And I say that goes without saying because that's always true in the context of covenant. If one enters into relationship by covenant with another, it includes all that that person is. 
into all of his house and all of his offspring, even if they're not born in that particular day. We've seen this in the concept of covenant throughout. Covenant with Adam included not only Adam, but all those he represented, all the human race. It included Noah, but, but not only Noah, but all those he represented. It included Abraham, but, but, but his, his descendants after him, and, and most particularly his descendants by faith. And with Moses, it included all those who were descendants of Abraham and all those who were to be part of the nation of Israel. So one stands for the other. And so as David stands, he stands for all of his houses. As Jonathan stands, stands, he stands for all of his house. And so, so there you have it. Now, again, the story progresses that the battle comes with the Philistines and the Israelites and, and Saul is so wounded that he falls on his own sword and dies. And in that same battle, Jonathan is killed as well, plus a couple of other sons of Saul. And David is to become king. Now that sounds really good for us. But it wasn't so good for all those in the household of Saul who didn't love David the way Jonathan did. And so they were quite upset about all of this, as you might imagine. Now David's going to become king. Conventional wisdom, kill everybody left in the household of Saul. And, and, and so there was uh, a, an attempt at a coup by one of Saul's sons. He eventually gets killed. Uh, and, but there are those in the household of Saul who flee. You can find this, and we won't turn to it, but in 2 Samuel chapter 4. In that particular passage, we see what happens. That, 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 that the word comes that David is, is, that Saul is dead. They run from the palace. One of the nurses grabs up Jonathan's son, whose name is Mephibosheth. He's five at the time. And the scripture says that he fell. Whether he fell in running, whether she dropped him, we don't know. But he became lame, became crippled in both feet. Now just take a minute to think of what a fall that must have been. And your average trip doesn't cause you to be lame in both feet. So we're not given the details. So I don't know what could have caused that. But that was the end result that this five-year-old boy could no longer really walk. He was crippled in both feet. Some years later, we don't know exactly how many years, but if you play the year chronological game as you read through the scripture, it appears by most accounts to be probably around 15 years after that event. So this young man, young boy, Mephibosheth is probably in his late teens, early 20s by then. And he had been taken by his nurse and others from the household of Saul to a place called Lodabar, which ironically means the place of no pasture or the place of no rest (laughs) and uh, aptly named and Mephibosheth aptly named means shameful thing why he got that name I don't know but but you can see now he he, he runs and he's in hiding and and a day comes where David appears to be musing one day and he said is there anyone left in the household of Saul to whom I may show kindness for Jonathan's sake that's a packed sentence Packed covenantally in the sense that this word kindness is a Hebrew word, chesed, which means covenant kind of love. It's often translated in the scripture as steadfast love, or it could be translated as devotion, or it could be translated as it is in the King James and some other versions, older versions, loving kindness. And the reason I say that it's a covenant word, it's a covenant word because that's the word that was most often used by people in covenant with each other. That would describe their relationship. It certainly described the relationship between David and Jonathan as chesed, as as steadfast love. They were committing themselves to each other as brothers, committing themselves in this relationship of covenant. They loved one another as themselves. And so there they were. 
And so David says, I, I, I am under obligation here. You see, in covenant, one cannot not help a covenant party in need. It's your obligation. That's part of what you're, you're saying. I've got to help you. If you're in need, appeal to me. And, and David, we'll see this next week. David knew well this idea of loving kindness, especially in the context of his relationship with God. Because you read through the life of David and you read through the Psalms, what you find is David often appealing to God for wisdom, for strength and help in battle, and for forgiveness on the basis of God's loving kindness on the basis of God's mercy, on the basis of God's chesed. In other words, God's saying, I know the magic word. <laughs> More than that, obviously. But I know what to say. I, I know what to mean. I know what to feel in this. I know how to call upon you. And I know as my covenant partner, if I call upon you on the basis of loving kindness, that you'll say yes. Because you've committed yourself. To do that. And it, it's more than simply a duty. That, that's the great idea of this word, this word, loving kindness. Those of you who know Vine's dictionary of, uh, expository dictionary of New Testament words, uh, could look this up, Chesed. And uh, Vine's puts it like this. He said, the word refers primarily to mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship, a covenant. But Chesed is not only a matter of obligation. It is also generosity. It's not only a matter of loyalty, but a matter of mercy. The weaker party seeks protection and blessing of the patron and protector, but he may not be able to lay claim, but he, but he may not uh, lay absolute claim to it. The stronger party remains committed to his promise, but retains his freedom, especially with regard to the manner in which he will implement these promises. Hesed implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. In other words, there's freedom in love and how many of you know that when you're in love you're not really free <laughs> there's no law that says you must but love draws you to it the author Vines goes on to say that the best English renderings may be devotion, steadfast love, or a combination, as it often is in the Old Testament Hebrew, between faithfulness and truth, faithfulness and reliability. There's no good one word to make this work. It just simply says that there's so much love, loyalty, faithfulness, reliability here that you can count on it. It's a guarantee. It's one of those words that guarantees thus we often see kindness being shown, being done. That is, it's an action. You can't sit still because you must show kindness. So, so David's musing. He gets it. He understands. I made a covenant with Jonathan. Uh, I know his brothers are all dead, but, but is there anybody left in, in, in his household, anybody from his seed, any offspring of, of, of him that, that's left? And it, it's an honest question, it appears, from David. He doesn't really know. And, and yet there is one in David's household who knows of this, this servant Ziba, for some reason. And he's been keeping this secret from David for all these years. You know Why? Because he probably doesn't know about this covenant between David and Jonathan. He probably doesn't know the, the relationship that David and Jonathan had. And, and he probably th is thinking that, that David will follow the conventional wisdom if there's anybody left in the household of Jonathan. He'll kill them because they would be his rival, very naturally speaking. And so David muses about this and, and Ziba is brought to, to, to David and because he's the servant of David, he has to answer him. But he gives him this qualifier. He says, yes, there's one left. His name's Mephibosheth. But don't worry about him. He's crippled in both feet. In other words, don't worry about him. He, he can't really come against you. So he's no threat. That's the sense there. 
He's no real threat to you. And then David says, well, bring him to me. I don't know what Zib is thinking at this point in time, but he has to do it. So he brings Mephibosheth to David. And, and you see this account here, how, how David addresses him. And he, he says to him, um, Mephibosheth, and, and I love this translation has an exclamation point at the end of that. And that's, that sense of Mephibosheth is on his face really before David. And he says, I'm your servant. What, what else is he going to say at that point? And, and so... David then, sensing the whole situation, says, don't be afraid. But Mephibosheth would be afraid. Why would he not think that David would kill him at that moment in time? Why would he not think that? Because he had been with these, the, the, the people from the household of Saul. And even if he had been with some people who knew Jonathan, he was only five when he was taken, when, when his dad was killed. And so how would he know anything, really know anything about the relationship between David and Jonathan? And, and so he'd been filled with all of these thoughts about David from the household of Saul. Saul hated David. And, so, and, and he may even blame David for his own being lame. The, the, the servants may have even said, the reason you can't walk is because when we heard that Saul had been killed and your dad had been killed, we had to take off. And whoops, we dropped you. And so it's really David's fault for all of that. Who knows what he was thinking? But, but it certainly wasn't good because he was there before David afraid and David says to him words that Mephibosheth can't even imagine because Mephibosheth's identity before David is expressed in the expression I'm a dead dog he says I know who I am before you David I'm just a dead dog and I know what you do with dead dogs you take them out and you throw them in the trash but here, so here I am a dead dog but, but David says no here's the deal I'm going to restore to you everything that is yours because you are grandson of Saul and son of Jonathan. That's, so I'm going to do that. And, and he says to Ziba, take him away, make sure it happens. And he says, oh, by the way, because of my relationship with your dad, I want you to eat at my table every day. I met a ton not only the prestige of that, but it meant there'd actually be food there all the time because <laughs> he was the king. So there was always food. But I want you to eat with me. I want you to be in my presence. That's, that's this deal. That's this relationship. Now you have to think that this is really good news to Mephibosheth. But you also have to realize that it's going to take him a while to get used to. He's going to have to get his head and his heart really around this. Because of all his time, he had been running away and hiding from David. And now he's in the presence of David. And David says, uh, oh, by the way, I want you to eat with me. Why would he not think, are you going to poison me? I want you to sleep in my house. Why wouldn't he think, well, when I'm asleep, is he going to kill me? I mean, you've got to think these thoughts are going to go through this poor guy's head, given all that he knew. And so he's going to have to trust David. What would enable him to do that? Well, certainly David had shown some kindness here. He actually went and got him, brought him, and it looks like this is working out. But also, if he would get wind that a covenant was made, that a covenant was made between his dad and David, he would get it. Oh, he loves me. Not because I deserve to be loved, he loves me because he loved my dad. And he loved, therefore, everyone who was in my dad. And that includes me. Oh, I'm safe. God, David has obligated himself to bless me because 
he's treating me just like he would treat my dad. Yeah. I trust many of you are tracking with me. If you're not, let me lay the rails here. All of our blessings that come to us as believers in Christ come because we're in Christ. We're joined with him. In fact, we read as our profession of faith this morning a great passage out of Ephesians chapter 1, which is really, in some sense, appears to be a great expression of praise by the apostle. Verses 3 through 14 in the original language in the Greek there is one sentence. And so it's always the sentence that's given as your final exam in your Greek classes to see if anybody can really translate this and punctuate it well. But uh, it's just one sentence. It appears just, just blows out of Paul. The scripture said that it's God-breathed. You get the sense really from this passage. Yes, I see it. It's just coming. It's just coming out of him. And really, it's a, it's a praise to, to God because we're in Christ. It, it begins, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in, every, every, in, in heavenly places. In other words, every spiritual blessing, every blessing we have from God comes by way of Christ, comes by way of the fact that we're in Christ. Mephibosheth would know that. He would know that every blessing that he's experiencing at that moment in time comes only because he was in Jonathan. Had nothing to do with him in that sense, only because for reasons unknown to him, it happened when he was not even born, that, that this was made, this covenant was made, and it included him. And now he would receive the blessings. Even as he that is the father, the he there, chose us in him, the him there is Jesus, even as the father chose us in Christ, when? Yes. <laughs> Before the foundations of the world. You've got to think, don't you? that Mephibosheth would be lying in his bed some night saying, this all happened before I was born. What am I doing here? If this were anyone else, if this were a different king, if this were a different generation, if I were of a different family, I'd be dead. But rather, I'm sleeping in the palace having breakfast with the king. Why? Because before... I was even, I was in. Chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before the Father, before him. In love, he, the Father, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his, the Father's will, to the praise of his, the Father's glorious grace with which he's blessed us in the beloved, in Christ. See? In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his, the Father's grace, which he, the Father, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, in heaven and things on earth, in Christ, in him, we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be the, to the praise of his glory. In him, that is in Christ, because you're in him. You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, every blessing that we have, all the blessings in heavenly places are the result of the fact that we're in Christ and we're in Christ not because of our own doing but because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. He set our, our destiny that we would be adopted through Jesus because we're in him. And it was his purpose, not ours, to his praise, not ours. He's blessed us in Jesus. In Jesus, because we're in him, we've been redeemed by his blood. His blood is sufficient, efficient for us. We've been forgiven because of all of this. Uh, and this all, not because God had a plan about us, but because he had a plan about Christ and we have an inheritance, therefore, that which is to come because of him, because of Christ. We have hope because of Christ. We have uh, the, 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 the sealing that comes to us because of the Holy Spirit, because of Christ. And like Mephibosheth, we lay in our beds, we sit in these seats and we think, how did I get here? And the answer is, the mystery of God, the secret counsel of God, the friendship of God. He makes known his covenant, those who fear him. He said, listen, I did this before the foundation of the world. You, you get a sense that before the foundation of the world, there, there was this intra-Trinitarian plan. And the Father said to the Son, I want you to redeem from your people. And the Son said, okay, I'll do that. In fact, we read in Hebrews, my one of my favorite benedictions. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of thee, what kind of covenant? Eternal covenant. This is a covenant from before time. This eternal covenant, Father and Son. In fact, Peter in his epistle puts it like this in First Peter in chapter 1. Verse 19, speaking of our salvation, he says, But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was, that is Christ, was foreknown, that this is always put into place, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times, which was the time beginning with the coming of Jesus, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. In fact, when Jesus was praying right before his crucifixion, as he's praying to his father, he says this, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. In other words, before he came, there was work that he knew that he was to do. He was to do that work. And he says, okay, I'm Okay, let's get on with it. I've, I've accomplished that work. And so, so Jesus knows of that. And so even as we read of Jesus, he always says that he, was, he had a mission. He came to seek and to save that was, which was lost. Even, even before his birth, the angel made the announcement saying, she'll call his name Jesus. Why? Because there's a plan, a mission. He shall save his, his people from their sins. That's why, that's why he's coming. Jesus always said that I didn't come on my own accord, but I was sent by the Father plan. I was sent by the Father. And, and, and he had this mission. He says, I'm going to do the will of my Father. And all of that. And what was the will of his Father? Well, he says that in various occasions. For instance, in John chapter 6, verse 38. 
Uh, Jesus said, for I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And so Jesus says, listen, I know we did this before anything. (laughs) And I'm the manifestation of what we planned before anything. But, But here it is. He's given to me. Those who are in me, those I represent in covenant. I've made covenant on your behalf with my Father to come for you. And I'm here. And I'm not leaving till it's done. And so when he prays in his high priestly prayer, he prays these mysterious, magnificent lines. Father, the hour has come, John 17. Glorify the Son. The Son may glorify you, since you've given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. Verse 9, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom... You have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me, that is not just those ones, his disciples at that moment, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. He has given him these ones who are in in him. Thus, as Paul works his way in his letter to the church in Ephesus in chapter 2, we read this, very familiar words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. (laughs) Have you ever thought about this? And you've said to God, who am I that you would regard a dead dog like me? I've just been running, I've been hiding, I've been staying away, I've been thinking bad thoughts about you, that if ever you got your hands on me, poof, that would be it. And now here you are, saying to me, no, 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 I want to offer you kindness. And you want to say, well, on the basis of what? And God would say, for Jesus' sake. Notice, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. The kindness of God, you say. This covenant in which we find ourselves because of God. In fact, Paul writes to Titus, and he's just as explicit about that as well in Titus in chapter 3. Verse 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedience, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. In other words, in hiding from God. Verse 4. But when the goodness 
and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. You see, Jesus is the manifestation of the very loving kindness of God. Jesus is the manifestation of God's loyalty, his devotion, his steadfast love, his mercy, his compassion. Jesus is the manifestation of that. As David was the manifestation of that to Mephibosheth, Jesus to us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, no, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit to me, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That takes my breath away. I trust it took Mephibosheth's breath away too. I can't answer all the questions that this teaching raises. But we mustn't miss the points this teaching makes. <laughs> it makes the point that it's because of Christ. It makes the point that it's because of God. It makes the point that it isn't because of our merit. It makes the point that we can be utterly assured because the guarantee isn't based on anything we've done or anything we've made. I am not worthy. I would not be willing to make a covenant with God to follow after him and to be his. Any more than Mephibosheth was willing to make a covenant with David and follow after him and be his. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth said, no, thank you very much. I'll stay in Lodabar. I'll stay away from you because I'm afraid of you. On the same way that I would say, God, I don't want any dealings with you at all. But what I didn't know was that I was in this covenant. <laughs> God and Jesus, my covenant head, as Mephibosheth was in this covenant between David and Jonathan. That David would show kindness. That God would show kindness for Jesus' sake to me. And that is my assurance. So that every blessing I have, I know why I have it. I know why I've been born again. Not because of me, but because of God's covenant with Jesus. I know that I have faith. Not because of me, but because of the covenant that I'm in that God made with Jesus. I've been justified that is declared righteous not because of me in my own righteousness but because of this covenant that I'm in that God made with Jesus. I know and I'm being sanctified not because of me but because of this covenant that I'm in because of Jesus, I know that a day will come when I'll be glorified, live in the very presence of God, not because of me, but because of this covenant that I'm in, because of Jesus. And the reason I worship, the reason I'm grateful, is because I have no idea why me. Every covenant has simple signs 
ways to commemorate, ways to remind. Jesus was in one such sign, the Passover meal, and out of it made another. The night that he was betrayed, he took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. So this is my body, which is given for you. Remember me. Same way he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, he gave this to his disciples. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Remember me. This table then is the very table of the presence of Jesus. Not literally, corporally, it's bread and juice. We know that, no change here, no magic. When Jesus was standing before his disciples, when he said, this is my body, they knew the bread wasn't his body because they could see his body. It was there. When he said, this is my blood, they knew it wasn't his blood. His blood was still running through his veins. They knew what he meant. I'm giving my life for you. But then as we come back to this table, we say yes. By his spirit, Jesus is here. And he calls us to his table. And what's he calling us to? He's calling us to remember. To remember what? To remember why we belong to God. And he says, never forget. It's because of covenant. Before the foundations of the world, you were chosen in me. That's your guarantee. Let's pray, Father. We sit, stand amazed. I pray that we'll never cease to be humbled and we'll never cease to be confident. Humbled because it's apart from us in that sense. It's only because of Christ the Worthy One and confidence because it is because of Christ the Worthy One. Grant to us assurance that we may know this covenant set apart God this bread and this juice that we may remember Jesus eat at his table now as a token of a time when we shall eat at his table this I pray in Jesus name amen I remind you this table is not the table of grace evangelical Presbyterian church it's the table of the Lord he invites to it all those who know themselves to be Mephibosheth <laughs> know themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. Believe and depend upon the Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel as the very loving kindness of God, the Savior of sinners. And his desire then to live around and in all of that, knowing that the blessing of God comes by way of Christ. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down the aisle to my left, these aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. As you do, stand amazed. Please come.